go. Take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, if you will. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. And um, as you're turning there, um, I want to kind of set the stage for us before we uh, dig in deep to this passage that is before us, this wonderful passage that the Holy Spirit has preserved down through the centuries to wind up in our hands. I'll say, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, that there is nothing like death that can change your perspective on life. People who know their time is limited on this earth suddenly jettison their once valued set of priorities for a whole new set of priorities. That's their bucket list. And for most in this situation, dying becomes a race to accomplish everything they always wanted to do in life, if they can. And they even do some drastic things like liquidate all their assets and travel around the world. This common scenario grossly misinterprets, however, both life and death, if we examine it from a biblical point of view. The world says life is about me and satisfying my interests, and death is simply something that stops me from pursuing them, that's all. But the truth of the matter is life outside of a covenant relationship with God is hard, it's painful, insane a good portion of the time, often uh, offers rather no lasting gain and fleeting, and death doesn't just close it out. It brings one face to face with God Almighty as his judge. Really, life and death for non-Christians is going from bad to worse. But with biblical revelation and the help of the Holy Spirit, we can develop a biblical perspective on life for them, that helps them to see themselves as God sees them and what death really holds for them. And if death is going to impact their living, let's help their understanding of a comprehensive death, as God defines it, to sober them up and instill in them a desire to use the remaining days on this earth to glorify God. I call this having a graveside view of redemption. And this perspective turns their, their outlook on life and death on its head. It's, it's no longer a good to bad, as the world would see it, or even, or even a bad to worse situation for those who don't know Christ, as the Bible sees it. But it could be a good to better situation, as the Bible promises so here's how the sage develops this. And I've taken the, taken the liberty to publish this for you in, in our bulletin so we can work through our outline with uh, the greatest of ease. But let me re- rehearse with you just the thrust of this passage, the thrust of this passage. I would say that people of this world, no matter how smart, understand nothing of God's sovereign activity behind life and what to expect from him the way Christians do or especially behind the wickedness of death. Therefore, it would be in their best interest as sinners to seriously consider God's new life that he gives by his grace and embrace it while they live, that they may join God's people before it's too late and celebrate it it responsibly and heartily the rest of their lives. That's what I see the 
the thrust being of this section, and I'm eager to open up this main idea for you. So first off, we see that people of this world, no matter how smart, understand nothing of God's sovereign activity behind life or what to expect from him. Now that's in chapter 8, verses 6 to 7. There are a lot of smart people in this world. You've no doubt met some along the way, PhDs, scientists, people of letters, or as they are formally called, educated. But that doesn't mean all of them are wise about life. In fact, book smarts and wisdom are not the same thing. These folks can build rockets and deal with complex mathematical equations that to us lay folk might as well be another language. But plenty of them lack wisdom for everyday living. They're not good with finances. They make bad decisions in areas outside their field of expertise. And they have bad organizational skills, which is why they so often look so unkempt. And their homes look like bomb sites. They can tell you how to get to the moon, but they get hopelessly lost in an airport. On the other hand, there are plenty in this world who are not formally educated, had never heard of quantum physics, and are completely stymied by computer science, but live wisely. They're not book smart, but street smart. They invest well, and they make their money work for them. They know the world and how it operates, and they can hold their own. Their house is in order, their lives are in order, their families are in order, and they have good-paying jobs. They're consistent in their lifestyle. They're reliable. They know how to manage their time. They're successful. But no matter who possesses worldly wisdom, the fact is that worldly wisdom is no substitute for biblical revelation. And without biblical revelation, no one, no matter how smart, can know who God is, what he is, how he operates, or what he expects from us. Anyone, smart or otherwise, without light of absolute truth, lives completely in the dark. The sage makes this point right at the beginning, chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. He says, When I devoted my mind to know wisdom and to see the business which had been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, I saw every work of God. I concluded, that no one can discover the work which has been done under the sun, even though a person laboriously seeks, he will not discover. And even if the wise person claims to know, he cannot discover. Now, the sage once again restricts himself to the resources under the sun in order to discover true wisdom, as well as to have a comprehensive understanding of the whole business of life itself where people work round the clock. That's the idea, by the way, of the figure in verse 16, though no one should ever sleep a day or night. The idea is that life is busy in all respects, contingencies, situations, schedules, appointments, people all doing their own thing, and quite a few who work tirelessly at their goals, but some even burning the candles at both ends. The sage searches for answers to why people busy themselves living this life. Why do they do this? After all, it's hard, often thankless. It takes lots of energy to get, to get somewhere, often makes no sense at all. 
Some nevertheless press on only to be let down, while others who are let down stay down. And some of them end it all. They would rather die than live if they cannot understand the meaning of life and what, it ma- why, and what makes it worth living. Now, you would think between the ivory tower dwellers and the street smart business moguls and those common sense, with common sense, someone would crack the mysteries and the meaning of life. But it's the sage's experience that no one will. No one will because no one can, any more than one can understand God's sovereign activity behind it all. Knowing the meaning of life and God's activity behind it remain mysterious apart from God's revelation of absolute truth. We're reminded that Paul had to tell the Greek audience on Mars Hill about the meaning of life and God's sovereign activity behind it. He had to tell them that. He said, look, there is one true God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not dwell in temple made by hands, nor serve by human hands as though he needed anything. And since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they may feel around for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we, lo- we move and live and exist. Now, we can imagine that these biblically illiterate and die-hard pantheists must have thought when they heard these truths that they would never have known themselves that Paul was out of his mind. Luke says that Paul's message actually caused no small stir among them. The esteemed Greek philosophers were completely in the dark about all of this, about the reality of life, until Paul told them the truth. And after he did, he let them know that they were responsible to do something about it. Listen to this. So having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now proclaiming to mankind that all people everywhere are to repent. Because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all people by raising him from the dead. So no matter how laboriously people seek to know the meaning of life and God's activity behind it all on their own, they will always come up short. Always. Now that's chapter 8. It ends that way, but as you probably know, Old Testament books had no verses in cha- or chapter divisions. Those were added much later uh, in order to, to make it more convenient to locate and remember biblical material. I see verse 16 of chapter 8 as the beginning of a new section that actually continues right through to chapter 9, verse 10. So if you turn your page in, in, the, in your Bibles to chapter 9, you'll see in verse 1 the second important truth of this section. It goes like this, only Christians understand God's will for their lives and what to expect from him and are therefore better off than people of this world. In the first part of verse 1, the sage makes the point that only the righteous 
the godly ones. Know that they are under God's control and that their deeds are subject to his will. Listen, for I have taken all this to my heart, even to examine it all, that the righteous people, wise people, and their deeds are in the hand of God. What a great and comforting truth this is for Christians. It's interesting that while people cannot know the meaning of life or God's sovereign activity behind it with their limited worldly wisdom, they can observe a discernible difference between themselves and God's saints, and that God's saints obviously know something that they don't. And that would be that God's sovereign will is at work in every aspect of life and controls everyone's activity, everyone's, as Paul assured the Athenian philosophers. Christians know this, and their knowledge of this is the foundation of their living, and also why they're much better off than those who know not God. Perhaps perhaps there were a good number of saints in the sages' time that did live their faith before the world. We don't know how many. I think he would be disheartened if he could see now how secular God's people have become, how they've been influenced by the world, and they have. And this raises very important questions in our minds. Do you think you have an obvious Christian witness? Do, Do those who know you best know that you walk to the beat of a different drum, a divine cadence. If we were to interview your unsaved family and friends, would they tell us that you're, that you're committed to the faith? Can they see it in your work ethic or the decent and orderly way you live or that you refuse to compromise your biblical principles? Have they stopped inviting you to birthday parties and graduations and other events on Sundays because they know that you reserve that day to worship God with the body? Hmm. If not, then there are some adjustments that you need to make in your life. Moving on, Sage tells us in the rest of verse 1, not only is fallen humanity unaware that even they are under God's will, they have no idea whether God accepts them or or what to expect from him. Sage says, people do not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits them. Now, what does the sage mean by this? We need to remember the context. He's talking about the sovereign activity of God in the life Uh, in life that remains mysterious to the fallen Mm -hmm. under the sun. And part of that activity is how God relates to people. And some he accepts or chooses, and others he rejects. The Bible's pretty clear about that. The sage uses the terms love and hate to describe these two divine activities. The Bible... uh, uses them in in, in quite a number of different places throughout the Old and New Testament. Jesus, for example, calls his would-be followers to love him more than their family. Do you remember in Matthew 10, verse 29, the one who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And the one who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
Luke records in his parallel passage, chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus saying, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, etc. Now, which is the right version? Is it love or is it hate? Well, likely Jesus incorporated both, but Matthew chose love and Luke hate to express Jesus' full thought. And we know, of course, that Jesus was not speaking literally here since he was the greatest advocate for the family. Rather, the context speaks of Christ's loyalty, or loyalty to Christ, I should say. So it has to do with choosing and rejecting. He wants his followers to prefer him and his word over family and its expectations of them. He must win out over familial relationships. Love Jesus so much that you always put him even before blood relatives, which, which after a while is sure to give them the impression that you don't love them. Another passage we might consider is Romans chapter 9, verse 13, where Paul quotes the Lord saying this, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now, the context this time is election, which also demands that we understand love and hate as choosing and rejecting, especially since Jacob and Esau hadn't even been born yet when the Lord said this in the Old Testament. Jacob I chose, Esau I rejected. In our text, the sage seems, or, or sees rather, the fallen, the fallen under the sun knowing nothing of God's divine activities, including whether he accepts or rejects them. All the more reason why we Christians need to bring the truth to their attention. Well, so far we've stated then that people of this world, know, uh, no matter how smart they are, cannot know God's sovereign activity behind life or whether God accepts them or rejects them. Only Christians can know this about themselves which is why to be a Christian is far better than being estranged from God. And that's a fact that our non-Christian friends need to know as well. I think our job in conveying this truth is enhanced, if only a small bit, by the fact that people are on a constant search for a meaningful life. They are. We know that. You can see it by the way they live. And as to whether or not they ever think about God and his sovereign activity behind their lives or whether he accepts them or not is really not the issue. Our job is to tell them that they need to think about this since lasting satisfaction in life that they so desperately want was originally meant to be had in a life where God is at the center a life that worships God and that God accepts. And that leads us to the third part of this section. God has ordained death for everyone, which people of this world see only as an evil thing. It's in verses 2 and the first part of 3. In case you're, you've missed the connection here, let me clarify for you. People need to be concerned about who God is, how he relates to humanity and how they stand before him before they die, since God has ordained death for everyone without exception. So let's see how the sage develops this. We read in verse 2 and through uh, 
to the first part of verse 3, it, that is death, is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good and for the bad, for the clean and the unclean, for the person who offers a sacrifice, and for the one who does not sacrifice. For the person who is, so is the sinner. I'm sorry, as the good person is, so is the sinner. The, the one who swears an oath is just as the one who is afraid to swear an oath. This is an evil in everything that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for everyone. Okay, so notice that this small bit of text begins and ends with the same statement. There is one fate for everyone. Everyone is going to die, both Christians and non-Christians alike. Whether you're good or bad, clean or unclean, sacrifice or don't, a forgiven person or a sinner, an oath taker or or not, everything that we do ultimately dead ends into death. No one is exempt from this. The sage says that this is, is such an evil reality in an under-the-sun worldview. People don't like this because it makes everyone the same in the end, which is no doubt an offense and a frustrating thought to the rich and the successful and the famous. But be that as it may, the reality is everyone will die. No exceptions. So let's follow the flow of the thought up to this point. If it is true that people in this world are ignorant of God's sovereign activity behind life and ignorant about whether he accepts or rejects them and knows not when death will come for them, only that it will, then... They are truly in a desperate way. And the last truth of this section tells them that it would be in their best interest as sinners to seriously consider God's new life that he's given by his grace and embrace it while they live, that they may join God's people before it's too late and celebrate it responsibly and, and heartily for the rest of their lives. That's in verses 3 to 10. I'm, I'm sure you understand what I've just said, but for the sake of those rare witnessing opportunities where we can walk someone through this so that we can create a proper context for him in which he can understand the gospel itself, let's break it down. At some point in an ongoing dialogue that you have with the lost, you need to assure that person that he is a sinner by nature. He is a sinner by nature. That's the way the sage puts it in verse 3. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of man are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterward, they go to the dead. We've spent, uh, we've spent time in our recent study in this wonderful book talking about just how insane the world has become just in our lifetime, just in, in the past 10 years. There are activities taking place in this world, beloved, even our own country, our own government, our cities, our public schools in corporate America, some of which have been passed by legislation that would make our stomachs turn and that are, very, that are the very definition of insanity. It's hard to say what the, the sage might have seen in his lifetime that confirmed what he already knew, but we know that nothing is new under the sun, right? 
People today are no more immoral than they were 3,000 years ago. They just practice their depravity, perhaps on a larger scale. Certainly they are today. But a sinner is a sinner is a sinner. And fallen humanity is full of evil and insanity. They carry on that way because they are that way by nature. Verse 3 specifically says the hearts of the sons of mankind are full of evil and insanity. Now you practice what you are. Remember Jesus said that the mouth speaks out of the abundance of the heart, right? And that out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, acts of adultery, other immoral sexual acts, thefts, false testimony, slander statements. These are the things that defile a person. In verse 3, I see the sage placing emphasis not so much on the fact that we all die, but that many will go to the grave in this depraved condition. That's the emphasis. And my proof for this is the last curt statement that the stage tags on to the very end of verse 3. Afterwards, they go to the dead. The sentence itself is even sharper in Hebrew. Afterwards, to the dead. That's it. Now, if you present this tactfully enough just at the right time to an interested non-Christian listener, here's what you do. You raise this question in his mind. So, what can I do about this since I cannot prevent certain death? And the sage answers that question. He says, well, you can address the condition in which you stand before a holy God. And this brings us to the next step. After we assure our listener that he or she is a sinner by nature, we need to assure that person that he or she does not want to die in this condition. That... It's, their, it's in their best interest as sinners to seriously consider God's new life that he gives by grace and embrace it while they live that they may join God's people before it's too late. Look at verses 4 to 6. Indeed, who can be accepted? Rhetorical question. The answer is no one. For all the living, there is hope for better a live dog than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead don't know anything. Nor do they have a reward reward any longer, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. Now, the sage tells his unredeemed listening audience that there is hope for them. Even though they will die, they have an opportunity to address their situation while they still live, while there's still time. And this is the point of his short proverb about dogs and lions. Dogs in the ancient world had little value, certainly nothing close to the regal reputation symbolized by the lion. The proverb may have originally referred to a, a, a comparison between cowards who hid from war and warriors who died heroic deaths. But whatever its context, being compared to a dog was not flattering at all. The sage calls all who are at odds with God dogs because they are depraved and God regards them as dishonorable. Nevertheless, as long as sinners live, 
they can find favor with God. Their status can change. What a hopeful message this is for unbelievers that we encounter, especially those who might be in crisis or, or at the end of their rope or maybe even suicidal. Listen to how the sage explains their hope. The living, the living know that they will die. <laughs> and how exactly is that hopeful? When a person is able to reason that it is not a good thing to die as an unredeemed sinner, then he can address his sinful condition before God, before it's too late. He develops a graveside viewpoint of redemption. He sees in light of certain death what matters most in life. This is the hope. And once a person understands death and its finality in light of of this new knowledge, he can be profoundly affected by it. But should he die before he gets a chance to consider death with respect to redemption and the implications of both, he's, he's lost the opportunity to act. And once death comes, all is lost. It's too late for anything else. Everything perishes along with you, your love, your hate, your zeal. Time has run out to know anything of value. And even the memory of that person is gone among the living. The sage gives these descriptions to enhance the finality of death. Oh, these are profound words, beloved, that people need to take to heart because there's a lot at stake. Which brings us finally to the last step with non-Christian listeners. We told them that, that they are by nature sinners and that it would not be in their best interest to die in this condition, but to consider the hope that they have to address their predicament before it's too late. And now we tell them how to do that. We say embrace God's new life that he gives by his grace and and join the people of God that they may celebrate it responsibly and heartily the rest of their lives. Verses 7 to 10, go, eat your bread with gladness, drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it's now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of your fleeting life which has been given you under the sun and all your fleeting days. For this is your portion in life and in your struggle under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do with all your strength because there is no work, planning, knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Sage's bidding is filled with with wonderful, hopeful images that his audience then certainly understood perfectly. We, on the other hand, I think, need some clarification. To eat with gladness and drink with a joyful heart, we've heard this before, we'll hear it again. It is a reference to celebration. And in this context, as in the others, it is a celebration of God's approval. The sage says, now is the time that God favors what you do, which means now is the time to find God's favor in what you do. It's a call to be right with God now, not to delay. We cannot know when we die, but we know that when it comes, it's final. So let death find you among the people of God. There's nothing 
worth celebrating more than the fact that you are right with God. Sage tells any skeptical reader, now is the time to find God's approval for all that you do. And when you have it, there is great celebration. In fact, your whole life becomes an ongoing celebration of being right with God. This next figure shows this. Always wearing white and having one's head anointed with oil. It's possible that the sage had in mind the white undergarment that the priest would change into in order to perform his solemn and holy duty. If not that specifically, certainly the idea of a change of new clean clothes for a special occasion is the focus here. That's the idea. A conversion is the special occasion. And in the New Testament, conversion is often referred to as putting on continually the attitudes and actions of the new self, right? Put on Christ. Put on humility. Clothe yourself with compassion, humility, gentleness, and patience, and forgiveness. Paul commands us to put off the characteristics of the old self, which are no longer true of us, and put on the characteristics of the new self, Ephesians 4. In the book of Revelation, those who wear white walk with Christ and have been found worthy of him. As far as the anointing of oil on the head, oil was often used as perfume in the Old Testament, among other things. But here, perfume is a symbol of celebrating a special event. You know, you clean yourself up and you smell good for this special event. And when a person finds favor with God and celebrates that by the way he lives, he will experience this this joy even in everything he does in life because he sees all his days of his fleeting life as a gift from a merciful God. He will enjoy life with the wife that he loves if he's married. And whatever he does now, he does 100% as unto the Lord because As the sage notes, this is the time for the godly to live for God before the end comes. I want to draw this to an end by by calling your attention to the imperatives of verses 7 to 10. They serve a dual purpose in our text. One obvious purpose is to call the curious unbeliever who has been listening in to think soberly about getting right with God as soon as possible, since death can come at any time. And he would not want to chance dying in the condition that he's in. If he has any hope of truly living and enjoying life as it was meant to be enjoyed, he must embrace God's gift of new life and join with God's people in celebrating it to the end. The other purpose of these imperatives that we pull out is for those who have done this already, you and me. Let's remember the sage is admonishing his son, right? He tells him here, in essence, the whole world is, is going in a sinful and condemned direction, but you, my son, have been redeemed and know God by faith. Therefore, live your faith. Enjoy your lot in life that comes from the hand of God. Celebrate it before the world all the days of your fleeting life. And the Holy Spirit commands us, by extension, to do the same. 
no matter what context we're in, no matter what the situation is right now, this is what we're called to do. Put the Christian life on display and show the world how we celebrate it until the end. The second purpose actually helps along the first purpose, doesn't it? God works sovereignly through the witness of his people to bring the lost to Christ. Can you see the two purposes working in tandem? I was thinking of the New Testament passage that brings these two purposes together, and I think I found it in in Titus chapter 2. Titus is very much an evangelistically orientated book, especially chapters 2 and 3, which talk about how we live our faith and show it to be logically irrefutable to the world. And in so doing, we make the faith very attractive. In verses four, uh, 11 to 14, which is the heart of the letter, chapter 2, 11 to 14, Paul explains to Titus God's sovereign work of redemption that he broadcasts to the world through those he has redeemed. In other, in, in other words, through Christian testimony. Now notice, starting with verse 11, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, right? That's what he says. The grace of God in the gospel was, the, was epitomized in the life of Christ and brings salvation to those who believe. The fact that it appeared means that God had to bring it. He had to reveal this special revelation. Because salvation cannot be attained under the sun without a special revelation from God. Next, in verse 12, we see that this saved life instructs people how to live. You see that? Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and in a godly manner in this present age. What God gives people in the gospel is a life of joy that celebrates him and a new way of living. That makes all our work that we do under the sun important. A life that shows us why everything that we do matters in God's economy. A life that is gain to us and removes our frustrations over what used to be mysterious. It doesn't matter. God has a plan. Finally, and more specifically, verse 13 tells us, that this new life that God gives to those who trust in the work of Christ alone and instructs us how to live meaningful lives until we die anticipates something better. Verse 13 and 14, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession eager for good deeds. Only Christians know what to expect upon death. Fully realized redemption of both soul and body in heaven. And it will happen for us when the Lord Jesus returns a second time to gather his people and bring them home. And this end time outlook on life motivates us to celebrate our new lives in Christ and makes us eager for love and good deeds. In keeping with the spirit of Ecclesiastes then, we might ask ourselves, am I God's advertisement for this wonderful new life in Christ? Seeing for most in this world is believing 
and you will confirm the gospel message by your conduct. We thank you, O God, for this time together, for this passage, for your word, for your mercy and grace, for Christ and his death and his resurrection and new life. And we pray, O God, that you would that you would be that you would be honored by the way we live this new life. A way that that represents life the way it will be in heaven someday, that we will make it attractive, that we will stand by the word, that we would live it precisely and accurately, that we would enjoy this new life that we live, and that you would be pleased to to draw people to yourself through our testimony, that they too may see and enjoy and celebrate this new life in Christ. Before it is too late... And that we do so until you come again. This is our prayer, O God, that we pray for your honor, for your glory, and for the benefit of your church. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.